Please remain standing now for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from John 16, 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's take a moment in prayer just to prepare and to allow what has been read over us to just soak for a second. Let's take a moment. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Triune God, you have spoken and given us words of life because you long for our life. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Whatever may be stopping up our ears, worries, anxieties, ambitions that can stop us from being present, to being attentive to the work of your spirit here and now among us, our participation with you in your word. Free us from those blockages. Open our eyes wide whether our eyes are tired or afraid and we've closed them, just nervous what might come into sight if we open them wide, afraid of what might fly in. Instead, God, give us courage to have eyes wide open to see you and to see your word. Oh, God, all because we know that you are a good God, full of character, defining what good character even means, setting the standard which all good and people who long for what is good and long for what is true and pursue what is beautiful ultimately are looking for you and your glory. God, we, 
God, we ask you would open us up. Not that we can just look then at our emptiness, but instead that you then might fill us in this moment. God, we're hungry for righteousness. We are thirsty. Meet us here. We need you. I need you. Speak through me. Speak within each of us. And may we, only by your strength, be able to receive the good you have for us today. It is in Jesus' name, his authority, recognizing his ascended place at the right hand of the Father, (laughs) and by the very power of the the Spirit, we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, just a quick poll by a show of hands. Who here has said with excitement and eagerness, um, man, you know one of the greatest gifts in my life is that Jesus left? No one. That seems about right. Um, instead, I don't think anybody says that. Instead, I think we take on the persona of Jax from Jurassic Park, where she says, he left us. You know, you remember that? Anybody remember that movie? He left us. He left us. Huh. And yet, when we come to Jesus here, the words he's communicating, the posture he takes is one of comfort. He sees the sorrow in the faces of the disciples. And he says, listen, it's actually to your advantage that I go. I mean, just sit in that for a second. It's better for you. It's better for me. It's better for us. It's better for the world that Jesus goes. Now, when I first read that, it was really easy for me to start imagining like a bad breakup where someone's just playing a guilt trip. No, it's better if I leave, right? Like, oh gosh. Um, But that's, I mean, when we read these words, we come with so much baggage, so much weight, and frankly, confusion. We've got a lot of work to do to really receive what Jesus is saying here. So let's take a moment together. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And what might be helpful in asking this robust question, how was it actually better that Jesus left? We're going to look at first two reasons why it was not better. You know, sometimes we can come at this and we start coming with our own interpretations. We bring our context or our hopes and we fill in the blanks rather than looking for what Jesus has to offer us today. So how was it actually better that Jesus left? We're going to look at two ways that it was not better. So don't, I don't want you to read into this uh, better in every degree. So in first, it, it was better that Jesus left, not because him leaving makes our lives easier. Him leaving makes our lives easier. That's not the reason. Makes it harder. Right. And we see this right here in our text. We can experience that and come with our own experience and wrestle with it, but it's right here in the text. Verses one through four, Jesus says, I'm going to leave. People are going to kill you, and they're going to feel great about it. Like, they're going to feel like they're doing God a favor by taking your life. And I'm not going to stop them, (laughs) but I just want you to know that I know, okay? I'm not going to stop them from taking your life. But I want you to know that I know so that you're not surprised so you don't stumble when it happens. So me leaving isn't going to make your life easier. And then Jesus says something really fascinating. He goes, and none of y'all have asked, where are you going? 
<laughs> None of y'all seem to care about where I'm going. You, you feel the intense. Now, you might think to yourself, this feels like a, a, a contradiction. Here's an example where God's word isn't accurate. It's a, it's a seeming contradiction over against chapter 13, verse 36, and chapter 14, verse 5, where they do ask, like, we don't know where you're going. Where, you're going. where are you going? This is a really human interpretation. I want, I want you to hear this. When they're asking that question, it's really easy to understand that they have no care in the world as to the actual answer to that question. What they're communicating when they are asking, where are you going, is why are you leaving? This would be like when I'm talking to my kids and I'm going to do a hospital visit or uh, going to a meeting in the evening and my kids are like, where are you going? They don't care if it's the multi-site office or the Olathe campus or the downtown campus. They don't care if it's the difference between St. Luke's Hospital and University Health. They're just saying, why are you leaving right now? They're communicating their sorrow that I'm leaving. And that's what the disciples have been. And Jesus is like, you actually don't have the curiosity as to where I'm going because you're so wrapped up. And he, and he doesn't come with judgment or shame, but he names it. That he sees their disappointment. He sees their sorrow. And then he says, it's better that I leave. Look with me again at verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now Jesus says it will be better that he goes, not... One, because it'll make your life easier, but also not because Jesus and the Spirit somehow can't inhabit the same room. So I want to be very clear. There's an old heresy, and sometimes we bring up old heresy because it becomes fresh heresy. And heresy isn't bad just because it's untrue, but because it leads to distortion and destruction in our lives. There's an old heresy called modalism in understanding, and some of you know certain videos that really poke at that, that some of you are laughing about. Okay, so here's the deal. Modalism is the idea that God is literally exclusively one person, and he just puts on different masks throughout history. It's the idea that he showed up as a father figure in the Old Testament, and then he showed up as Jesus, the son, and he shows up as the spirit now after Jesus's ascension, but it's all just one God putting on different masks so that when Jesus is praying to the Father, he's just talking to himself. But that's not what we see in Scripture. There is something rich and beautiful to the dynamic of the triune community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit experiencing community. Yes, one God and yet three persons, and we are peering into a mystery that could take us eternity to unravel or to understand but what Jesus is not saying is like, hey, I got to go because the Spirit and I, we just can't hang out in the same space together. This town ain't the big enough for the both of us, right? Like that's not what he's saying here. Instead, Jesus is saying, I have to depart. What does he mean? I have come to live, to die, to pay for the sins of the world, to rise again, and then to ascend. I need to pay for your cleansing. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell within us. 
Because we have been cleansed. Look throughout the biblical narrative. At the very beginning, you have Adam and Eve, and they're walking with God in the garden. But in the midst of their sin, there is multiple layers of their death that slowly unravels. Some of it's quick, some of it's slow. But then over time, God comes, and he is on prophets. He is on the judges. He is working throughout history around his people or among his people. But only... Only after Jesus dies, and then as the author of Hebrews says, dies once and for all. One sacrifice for eternity that covers all sin. Can the Holy Spirit, then the Holy God, and this is a hard framework for us to come to grips with, but that God in his utter perfection can come and dwell within us because it has been fully cleansed when we've embraced Jesus. He's saying it's better because I'm going to clean you and now the spirit will come and dwell in you when you receive me. There's something rich and beautiful. And we saw the depths and the beauty of what it means for God to come and make his home in us. That was in John chapter 14. We spent more time there earlier in John's gospel unpacking that. So if it's not better for us in terms of making our lives easier, if it's not better for us in terms of somehow the Spirit and Jesus can't hang out in the same space together. Why is it better? What's the advantage that Jesus is communicating here? I'm going to say something. You're going to see it on the screen, but it's pretty audacious. It's this. The Spirit can do greater things through us than Jesus could with us. Mm-hmm. What? The Spirit can do greater things through us than Jesus could with us. Jesus earlier in John chapter 14, verse 13 said, when I'm gone, you're going to do greater things. Greater things. Looking at his disciples, looking at his apostles. You are going to do greater things. Now, I'm also going to say something that's going to sound totally outlandish, which has made other monotheistic, so one God religions, see Christianity as anathema as heresy, as abhorrent. And it's this, Jesus had limits. Jesus had limits. When God took on flesh, he took on some of the limitations of humanity. The second person, could Jesus be in multiple locations at once before his resurrection? No. Did he get tired? Yes. We've seen that time and again. Does he weep? Does, does he bleed? Can he die? Yes, yes, and yes. There are limitations that Jesus himself embraced in the incarnation. And what a wonderful gift it is that God walked and talked among us and can resonate with us. The author of Hebrews also talks about this. There's no way in which you've been tempted that Jesus himself cannot relate. What a wonderful gift. Yet, there are limitations to what Jesus could do incarnated, enfleshed among us. But it was all a part, but there was all a part of his plan, Charlie. All a part of his plan. Because he didn't want to just do it for us and among us. He wants to do it in us. In a spot that only the Spirit can rummage around in your soul and my soul and our spirits in ways that only by the divine working of salvation history, that God created the world and then he sent his son and then his son came and died and then cleansed this temple for all who received him and then the spirit came to dwell within us to do work that the spirit uniquely can do. Isn't this why the apostles had to wait in the upper room before the spirit came? 
There's something unique about the Holy Spirit. He's not just a really fun idea that we tack on when we think about Scripture. There is empowerment. There is realization of God's presence, of the future glory, breaking into the present, into the depths of who you are, in the spaces you think are hidden from everyone. That is something wonderful that comes in God's divine plan for you and for me. The Spirit is not tangential, but essential to what God wants to do in you and me. If there was just the Father and just the Son, we would not have a full picture of God. We would not have a full picture of what he wants to do in our lives. We have a glorious window into the triune nature of God that is extraordinarily important. You see, the truth that was in Jesus, now the spirit of truth we see in the text dwells within us. It's not just a truth we hear outside, but a truth that resonates within. Something extraordinary about the work of the Spirit. You see, God has always, if you look across the biblical narrative, across the story beginning in Genesis, he's always fascinatingly wanting to work through people, his creatures. And in the old covenant, There's this law, and it's like, oh, it's chafing against us. But even Ezekiel says there will be a new covenant where what? He writes the law on our hearts. It actually gets written into us. Who's doing that? The Spirit. Doing the work. It's not an outside in. It's an inside out. Movement of transformation that is uniquely fully God, but beautifully the Spirit at work. So what is this? work that God has us to do? What does he want us to be a part of? Look with me here at verse 8. We see, and when the Spirit, or he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I want you to remember something. We've already talked about this, but where is the Spirit? Is it just floating ethereally out there in space? No. The Spirit of truth dwells In believers, whatever you see the Spirit doing, he's doing through believers, which I hope, I don't know what your story is today, and I don't know, I need to hear this. God has you here on purpose because he wants to do stuff through you that you uniquely can do. Self-selecting out in any number of ways actually breaks God's heart because he loves you, but also because he wants to do something uniquely through you that only you can do. I'm not trying to go so far down the unique snowflake game, you know, where like everybody's super special, but you are really special. You are. And God sees that, and that was a part of his plan to send his spirit in you uniquely where you are to contribute Not as a burden, but as a gift. And he wants to, friend. And then Jesus zeroes in when he's talking about the Spirit's work through us in this language of convict. Now, the word convict, interestingly enough, in the English, it can come with different nuances, right? To be convicted of an idea means you are really confident down in your gut about something. It comes with heat and it comes with energy, right? But there's another word or another nuance to this word that actually is more appropriate to the context. And that is a courtroom imagery. 
okay, that of court, courtroom imagery, that you are convicted of a crime, declared guilty, condemned. That is actually the meaning here. It's not that the Holy Spirit is going to really make everybody's own personal ideas really convicted in their gut. Instead, this is a courtroom declaration of position in law and reality. This word convict shows up 18 times in the New Testament, and it shows up in a space where it exposes someone's sin, an area they have missed the mark of God's good design, with also, most of the time, an opportunity to repent. So that means turn from that errant way more in line with God's good desires for your life. Okay? So here's what we come to see. The Spirit can do greater things through us than Jesus could with us, and this was all a part of God's plan, the triune God working through each person of the Trinity. Here's why the Spirit has been given to us. Jesus left us to wrap up the trial, friends. I know some of you may be thinking, where is this coming from, Gabe? What is going on? This is why it's important to read a verse within its paragraph within its chapter, within its book, within the broader movement of salvation history. We have to read our Bibles well. You can't just pluck this passage out and apply it any which way you want. We need to understand how this has been fitting in the flow of John's gospel account. And actually what we come to see is that the first 12 chapters, Jesus has been putting the world on trial. You look in chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus, we see John writes out that the, the, the one who created the world came into the world and they knew him not and they wanted him not. Already the rejection has been named. And then throughout, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and others consistently doubt, question, disbelieve, and dismiss Jesus. And he continues to bring ample evidence to the case. This is who, and what does he say? The world is already condemned. I've come to bring evidence. <laughs> and then chapters 14 through 16, fascinatingly enough, we see that the helper, or also could be translated the advocate or the counselor, or in Greek, the paraclete, continues the trial. But once again, remember location. This is kind of like real estate. Location, location, location. Where is the spirit of truth? In believers. In believers. That is how he works in the world. Now, here's the irony of all of this, and we should feel it. It's very thick. Think of verses 1 through 4. They are being held in trial. They are kicked out of synagogues. They will be killed because of their connection with Jesus and found guilty in a court of their peers. But that is the worldly court. The heavenly court is also going on, and the tables are turned, friends. This is a drastic turn. And to be clear, the world isn't also some ethereal dynamic. But it is anyone who rejects Jesus. And that can take structural shape over time and systemic realities, of course. But it's anyone and anything in opposition to Jesus. Now, I know if you're anything like me, I'm first reading this, I'm like, man, this feels real presumptuous right? And part of that is because of our cultural location. We have this framework in our mind that humility means everybody's viewpoint is equally valid. That is not how Jesus approaches the world. 
Not everybody's viewpoint is equally valid. It may be equally interesting, but it does not speak to reality equally. And Jesus is too passionate about our life to let us live in a malaise of our own death and to say, your truth is your truth. Instead, he wants to wake us up to life. And honestly, it is usually in the spaces of deep comfort or wealth. And I would dare dare to say in the West, we have some of the greatest difficulty with what Jesus has to say here with courtroom imagery. Because if you are suffering, if you are being thrown out of synagogues, if you are watching family members be put to death because they declare that Jesus is the Messiah, you want that conviction to come. You need things to change, not just everybody to get along and to feel all right, okay? When you are in suffering, that gives you a different hermeneutic, a different way of seeing the world and expecting and longing from God. Amen. So in the midst of this, what is the work? So how how do we wrap up the trial? How does Jesus, by the power of the Spirit within us, call us to wrap up the trial? Look at me, verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So how does the Spirit convict the world through us like Jesus? Now, we're going to unpack these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to look at these three together. And then also, I'm going to be using the language we. And by that, I mean the co-laboring or the participation of believers with the work of the Spirit. Okay, so that's what that means. So here, here we go. Number one, we declare a deeper need. So this language of sin because of an unbelief in Jesus. They will convict because of sin, because of their unbelief in Jesus. The world is in desperate need. And Jesus came to declare that yes, there is a need, but he also came to offer fulfillment to that need. He didn't just come because he wasn't needed. He came because we need him. And the revelation or the revealing of sin And declaring that we are hopeless without Jesus. I mean, this kind of death, this kind of cross, this excruciating pain by the creator of the universe who imagined you before you breathed your first breath, why go through all of that if it wasn't needed? This is need. And we are hopeless without the one exclusive way, truth, and life that comes in Jesus across all cultures, across all time, across all history, we need Jesus. Not someone who goes by a different name. It can be a different translation, for sure. Yeshua, Jesus, of course. But it's still Jesus. It can't be a different religion, a different structure. It is still Jesus. We need him. And in our sin, and in our brokenness, we come, and this is what you and I do. We declare the brokenness of the world. We declare that Jesus meets us in that brokenness to bring healing. 
Why? Because if we don't say it now, there is a day, and the same author of this gospel account wrote Revelation, and he says there is a great throne judgment coming where you will stand before and you will give an account. So we declare now because out of compassion and out of mercy and by the work of the Spirit within us, seeking to declare that there is conviction on this world, that others might receive that conviction as true and declare and understand that they have a need for Jesus, receive Jesus, and have life. That's what the Spirit's doing. Such that when we speak in the same way as we saw last week, when we are hated, it's not really, we can't take it personally. It's not that they're hating you if you are walking with Jesus. It's that they hate Jesus. Same way here, when people reject the message of Jesus, don't take it personally. They are rejecting the work of the Spirit's prompting that they are convicted, condemned, and in need of Jesus. And so every, and I, and, and, and I know sometimes in these conversations, it starts to build an unholy anxiety. That's why I name this. It's like, oh, I've got to say it just right. I've got to tell my neighbor just right about Jesus. I've got to send that perfect text. I've got to write that flawless email. I've got to be just absolutely perfect next to my coworker. No, 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 no. It's the Spirit of God working through you in those conversations. We do have something to say but it's not your perfection that will save them. Not you saying it just right. It's the Spirit, yes, working through your words. Don't remain silent, friends. Yes, write those emails. Yes, send those texts. Yes, have those conversations. Yes, have Jesus on your lips, but not with an unholy anxiety. Rest that the Spirit is working and coming through your words in a way that can turn a dead flower into a beautiful rose bush. That's what he can do. I got to get moving. Okay. <clears throat> and actually, we see this with Jesus too, right? Go over to Mark chapter 2. A paralytic is brought to Jesus. What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Hey, hey, Jesus, know the need, right? And he goes, no, no, your sins are forgiven. And then all these religious leaders are freaking out. And he goes, what do you think is more powerful? Me to say that he should stand up and walk or for me to say his, his sins are forgiven? But in order that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. He is focusing in on sins, friends. Not that he dismisses physical maladies, but sin is really crucial to Jesus and to the work of the Spirit. And so may we share that good news and may we experience the co-laboring with the Spirit as he dwells within us as we share that word in a timely way, as we share our vulnerability and our own brokenness and how Jesus is meeting us in our brokenness and how he's engaging us and how his grace has really infiltrated our lives. Yes, yes, yes. What we are saying, friends, if we want to keep this courtroom imagery, is that every time we share the gospel, we're offering a plea bargain. If you know this, right? Plea bargain is you're guilty. And there's a way to get out of going to prison. Here's the plea bargain. You let Jesus die for you. You accept him as your Lord and your Savior, and you're free. But you have to admit guilt. And when you think you're innocent, a plea bargain that gives you freedom is still extremely offensive. I am innocent. I don't need a plea bargain. Oh, yes, you do. It's a, gra it's a gracious one, better than anyone deserves. And it'll bring freedom and life. But you have to admit you're guilty. You got to admit you're broken. You got to admit you need him.
So number one, we declare a deeper need. Spirit, do your work this morning. Do it. Number two, we declare a more beautiful vision of what is right. Now, this second one is really intriguing. It's not intuitive. It takes contemplation, actually good biblical study. And even in the midst of that, I'm going to say this is where I've landed. Thoughtful scholars disagree, but this is where I'm at this morning. I see this as what John is laying out, and, and other scholars, other scholars, scholars, and then this, this sometimes joker of a pastor agrees, okay, with these scholars, all right, around this. This is more of a play on words. Because what does Jesus say? He's like, convict the world of righteousness because I'm going to the Father? What in the world is he talking about? This is a play on words. This is the only time the word righteousness shows up in the whole gospel account of John. And it's always fascinating when you look at people's influences. If you like artists like I do, it's like, ooh, who are their influences, right? Who's really shaped their creative milieu to kind of birth forth other music and things like that that I love? Well, John loves himself some Isaiah. Oh, man, he loves himself some Isaiah. And it's just, interestingly enough, Isaiah does the same thing. When you get to uh, Isaiah chapter 64, He says, all of your righteousness are like soiled and bloody rags. What? This is righteousness. Rightness. Like the things that are supposedly in line with God's design. How is all of my rightness like soiled, bloody rags that we seek to discard? It's almost John is playing on this too. That he's going to convict, the Spirit's going to convict the world of righteousness. And then the Father and Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. What's going on? On here. You know what's also fascinating is that Jesus doesn't necessarily go at the Pharisees' righteousness. Interestingly enough, even in the Sermon on the Mount, he says you've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Do you see? This is really important. And that's not meant to be, oh, see, we're just going to always be endless sinners. We'll never measure up. Therefore, just fall on grace and live the life you want. No, 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 no. We're missing the Sermon on the Mount. I don't have time to go into all of that. But what Jesus is saying is actually he has a more beautiful vision, a more robust vision of what is right than even the Pharisees see. The Pharisees see some of it right. They even have a zeal, on it, but they can't. Even here's, here's the deal. Look at Jesus's life. He leans into and models this righteousness. He follows Torah. He, I mean, even his parents are bringing him to the temple and, and giving the sacrifice of the doves because they were poor to help pay for and, and bring about sacrifice of cleansing even for Jesus. And they're going through all of these steps. He's following Torah. Even when he breaks Sabbath, the reason he breaks Sabbath isn't because he thinks you're all machines so you should never rest. Sometimes Christians can manipulate that and be like, oh, I'm free to work all the time. No, you're just baptizing your idol, okay? Instead, Jesus is God, and that's what he's communicating more than anything else. You know that God upholds creation. Here I am doing what my father does. Don't just see me as a human breaking Sabbath. See me as God upholding the world on the Sabbath. So he's going through this in a way that we so easily start to besmirch any sort of rules or regulations or law. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Righteousness, rightness is good. We long for it. Blessed are those who hunger for it, (laughs) by all means. Hmm. But Jesus is gone. And the model of rightness that was on display, the way he loved 
his compassion. Even the woman who was to be stoned for adultery, he stops, but then he looks at her and says, go and sin no more. No, it doesn't say just go live any way you want. Ah, no, 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 no. It's, hey, mercy so that you might pursue rightness, so that you might know joy. This is for your good. I'm not saying that to give you a burden, but because this is where life bubbles up. This is where I am, and I want to bubble up with you. But Jesus has ascended. Now what? This is why he makes such a big deal throughout the end here of a new commandment I've given you. What? To love one another. In the same way that he has an extraordinary new standard that is way higher of sacrificing and dying even for our enemies. That is extraordinary in the path and the person of Jesus. And that's now to define the church. Not in that we have to show up with a smile on our face, but we ought to be pursuing, following Jesus. Not just proclaiming his name on Sunday and living like the devil on Monday. Instead, we've got to be pursuing his ways for our good. You know, Tim Keller once said, the world, given enough evidence, will confess of its wrongdoing, but only Christians will confess of their right doing. <laughs> Say that again. The world, given enough evidence, will confess of its wrongdoing. Christians alone, given enough evidence, will confess of their right doing. Meaning, even in our best efforts, there is more beautiful vision of what is right and good that we are growing into. Continuing to repent and say, continue to refine me, continue to grow me. I haven't arrived. It's not just the wrong things I've done, but the right things I thought were right. God, you need to give me a bigger imagination for these and how you're working in the world. And so how did this shake out in Rome? Rome often felt shamed by the church. Why? Because when Rome looked, they said, look at this, look at these Christians. They're not only taking care of themselves, but they're taking care of all of our people too. Look at this. There's actually a quote um, from a letter to Diognetus uh, that's around the first to second century. And listen to what this Roman ruler writes, he says, they share, speaking of the church, they share their table with all, but not their bed with all. So they're really generous, but they're not sleeping around. Hey, yep. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of things. And the world's looking in, not that they're perfect, but they're looking in, they're like, there's something different going on in this people. There's something right that draws you in. And now that Jesus ascended with the Spirit now within us, even that rightness convicts the world of its wrong rightness. You see? Or inadequate rightness. Oh, Spirit of God, do your work. And then number three, we declare a richer way of assessing everything. <laughs> judgment. Oh, who doesn't love some judgment, right? Um, you know, it's... <laughs> Here's the deal, friends. In our call, which is a good one for justice, you cannot have justice without judgment. You cannot. When I think of Tyree in Memphis, slain by those police officers in a brutal act, I long for justice, but it must come with judgment. It has to happen in a court of law where the facts are on display and there must be sentencing. We long for that. When we heard of the atrocities that have been there throughout the history of humankind, but in a greater degree or maybe a more awareness and hashtag me too of men and women in the midst of these dynamics and the atrocities against women, you, we, we long for justice, do we not? But there must be judgment. 
your car gets broken into and your window's smashed, you want your stuff back. <laughs> that requires judgment, right? That requires someone declaring someone else is guilty and getting you stuff back. That's, it's human. It's not, the, what we don't want is that judgment with its sights set on us. That's what we don't want. And yet, what we find here is that Jesus got real judgy with the evil one. (laughs) He judges the evil one, the ruler of this world, what the Apostle Paul calls the prince of the power of the air. And he says, Lord, (laughs) would you bring your work here? He he says, this framework, this imagination, the aim that we often have in the midst of the world is shaped by the evil one. The Apostle Paul says we're even blinded by the evil one, but Jesus says, I've judged the evil one and I'm bringing a new paradigm. You know what the evil one often does? He says the only way to sustain life is to justify taking someone else's life. Always. It's always through violence at the end of the day. I have to preserve myself by taking someone else and their life and feeling justified in it. Again and again and again, this is his tactic. Through a series of lies, a form of self-preservation that I have to take someone else out in order to be okay. We see this in xenophobia. We see this in racism. We see this based upon the color of skin, based upon the country of origin, based upon age, whether someone's in the womb or whether someone's old. Er. Watch it. And the idea that surely they don't have anything else to live for, so let's take them out of their misery, euthanasia. These are the conversations we're having in our broader culture. Why won't we be compassionate and just help them finish their life? Why won't we just be compassionate and end this life in the womb? Why won't we be justification to take someone else's life because that's the only way to preserve yours? Why don't we build this and keep those people out? And this, because that's the only way we can, that may not be great for them and it may end up costing them their life but it's the only way I can keep mine again and again and again. And what does Jesus do? He lays down his life to give life a radically reoriented way of assessing everything. How do I go about laying down my life? How do I go about laying down my life? Cause that's how real life comes. Don't listen to the lie of the evil one that I have to take someone else's life in order to sustain mine. No, 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 no. Lay down your life. Even with an enemy, they smack you on the face and you stand up with dignity and you say, I don't have just one choice, which is revenge. I have another which is to look at you with dignity, without retaliation. Extraordinary. I got to get moving. Okay, so here we are, (laughs) and we find a whole new framework, a richer way of assessing everything. Spirit, do your work. Now, I know some folks in here are like, Gabe, 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 Jesus didn't come to condemn, and you're right. He said the world is condemned already. Again and again throughout John's gospel, he comes back to that. It is already damned. It's headed to hell. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be very, just very blunt with you this morning. Those who do not know Jesus are going to spend an eternity apart from him in hell and where God does not want them to go. And that is where the world is headed by someone who seeks to rule with a path and a broad path all the way down to the pit. But that's not where God wants you and me to go. He says, it's already condemned. There's only one hatch of escape. And at best, the world is confused. So those who are in opposition to Jesus, but at worst, there's a willful ignorance. And even, as John says, a hate towards Jesus and his purposes. 
So what does this look like, friends, when the Spirit shows up and does these kinds of things? That we're, nah, and even we've got to be careful, shows up. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's in you. <laughs> he's not showing up. You're just paying attention sometimes, and sometimes you're not, okay? He's there. So what does it look like? It looks like Acts chapter 2. The apostles waiting, 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 and the Spirit comes, and what happens? Peter gets up, and he starts talking. Surely there's something miraculous here, not only because everybody's hearing in their own language, but because Peter looks out, everybody says, you killed Jesus. Go look it up. <laughs> he accuses them all of murder. Mm. And then it strikes them to the heart, and they come, and massive numbers come to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, admitting their guilt and receiving them as their Lord and Savior. And over and over again, there are ways in which it shapes whole towns, whole communities, and truly the outcast. I love what Hildegard of Bingen says when she describes the Holy Spirit. She says, 12th century follower of Jesus, she says, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a burning spirit. It kindles the hearts of humankind like tympanum and lyre. It plays them, gathering volumes in the temple of the soul. The Holy Spirit, he is a fire, friends, and he wants to work through you and he wants to share all the good truth of who God is and his presence as we saw in verses 12 through 15 in you. And he longs for the whole world, wherever you are. No longer is Jesus just limited to one spot in one town in Nazareth or in Galilee or Capernaum. But now wherever you are, the work of God and the mission of God and the conviction of the Spirit can take place across every nook and crannies, no matter what language it is. Coming with the very clothes of your context and the words of your language, you get to be the very voice of God. There's something powerful there. Beautiful. We live in an extraordinary time in salvation history. Sometimes I find myself going, man, I just wish I was with Jesus when he was walking around. And Jesus goes, no, no, you don't. It's better. Don't miss that. Believe it. Let it sink. It's better that you've got the spirit in you right now. This is wonderful. You have an extraordinary opportunity such that whenever you share the gospel, what God and Christ has done for us, the Spirit is at work in conviction. Whenever you see a husband and wife both yielding to the Spirit, even in the midst of what seems like a hopeless case, the Holy Spirit's guiding them to wholeness in a way that's beautiful and rich. When there's someone who's at their wit's end in the midst of an addiction, but they surrender their lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit can also come in there and bring guidance towards freedom and wholeness. We are in an extraordinary time because the Spirit of God is available to us in us. Not just among us, not just around us. And doesn't that just get you jazzed? I don't know about you, friends, but that is just awesome. I don't know what language you'd use. I apparently use jazzed, so there we go. Does that get you rocked up? I don't know. <laughs> Smooth jazzed? I don't know. Um, sorry. But here's the deal. The big question is, how is this even possible, friends? Right? How is this even possible? And I'm going to close this up with this. How is this even possible? Because listen, there's a real danger here. When you feel the weight of what Jesus is actually saying about the spirit in the church, about followers of Jesus, when the word is preached right now, the spirit's doing his convicting work. <laughs> right now. The question is whether you're receiving it or not. But he is working right now. There's a real danger because this can lead to a savior complex, a God complex. It can lead to arrogance, hubris. So how do we guard against this? The only way 
that this is actually possible for the Spirit to actually work through you like this as if he's first worked in you like this. Let me say that again. The only way that this is actually possible, that there is gospel-shaped work, is if you've let the Spirit do this in you before you come with presumption of him doing it through you. He's got to convict you of your sin, of your righteousness, of your judgment. And if you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, if you've never seen him as meeting a need, as guiding you into a richer life, and also pointing you to a whole new way of seeing the world, you will never be able to show up in the way that the Spirit of God wants to work through you. It has to happen first in you. One of the greatest catalyst to the the movement of the gospel is actually gospel-shaped humility, knowing that God has convicted you just as much as he's convicted the world, but we've taken the plea bargain. That's the only difference. Hmm. And there's a fascinating passage here towards the end where it says that the Spirit glorifies the Father. He makes Jesus gorgeous, as Nediatus might say. Puts the spotlight on Jesus. How? Because Jesus is the only one who can meet that need. Because Jesus is the only one who set the perfect model of righteousness. Jesus is the only one who is the ultimate judge. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all of this. And he's come to us with grace. So whenever we come to this, we are pointing people to Jesus. We are celebrating and walking in the life of Jesus. And seeking to honor Jesus. So let me ask you, what is the Holy Spirit doing in you this morning? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you allow the Spirit to convict you of unbelief, your self-reliance, or your idolatrous strategies to meet your needs. If not, all you have to do, and this is helpful for me anyway, is engage the ABCs (laughs) when approaching God. Admit that you're a broken sinner. Believe that Jesus is indeed Lord and Savior and confess him and say, here is my life. It's that simple. It's the beginning of a journey um, and it starts with a surrendering to that work of the Spirit, receiving the plea bargain. And if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, have you allowed the Spirit to convict those around you? Are you collaborating with him on that? If not, you're missing out on one of the greatest advantages that Jesus says he's gone through all of this, that he might do his work, his mission in the world through you and through me. So here's what we're going to do. That question is very simple, but it goes really deep. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes of silence or a minute of silence. I'm going to pray. And sometimes we can't answer those questions because we just don't slow down enough to let the Spirit speak, okay? So let's take a moment of silence. I'll turn in prayer and then we'll turn to communion. Moment of silence here. What is the Holy Spirit doing in you?
Lord Jesus, there is more that could be said, but we're going to trust the Spirit to take this. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in each of our hearts. If we are believers and we have not been yielding to the Spirit, I pray, Lord, that we would surrender afresh. Lord, if there are those here who do not know you, I pray, Lord, that they would surrender to the conviction of the Spirit and know the joy of eternal life through Jesus alone. God, would you do your work? We anticipate you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Now, if you are here and you have more questions or long for someone to pray for you or want someone to walk through you about what it looks like to walk with Jesus, Nidiatis will be up front here to pray with you, to answer questions, to wrestle together. So I want you to know she's gonna be up here during communion this morning if you long to ask. And of course, anytime after the service, before a service, two weeks from now, a month from now, we're here for you. Um, but we want to make that available now. But now we turn to the Lord's Supper, a meal that reminds us of the plea bargain we have in Jesus. And if you are here and you're new, let me walk you through how we partake in this together. This is a meal that celebrates that we recognize our need has been met in Jesus. We recognize that he is the perfect righteous one and that judgment of the world has come in and through him. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're on either ends here, you're going to go to the communion stations on the end. If you're in the middle, you'll circle around to the back, partake, and then circle back to your seats here. And I would encourage you to take this time as you're standing in line and or going to the table to meditate and continue to ask the Spirit, what, what are you showing me this morning? What are you convicting? What are you guiding me in today? But before you come, let's remember... The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Drink and allow the gospel to be proclaimed to your senses and rest afresh.